welcome listeners and potentially viewers to the uh, January edition of Discourse from the Religious Studies Project. Um, my name is Chris Carter. Um, sort of legacy listeners will have, have heard me a lot. Recent listeners, not so much. Uh, but I was one of the co-founders of the RSP back in 2012. Um, now, don't do too much notionally look at the finances um, and uh, and work at the Open University with David, who also co-founded the RSP with me. So that's brilliant. And I'm joined today um, by two folks who I have not met yet, um, but we've had a bit of brief discussion around tech stuff and general introductions. Uh, so um, I'm joined by Lauren Griffin and Christy Boone. Um, Lauren, do you want to say who you are, why you're here? <laughs> sure. I'm Lauren Horn Griffin. I'm assistant professor in the philosophy and religious studies department at Louisiana State University. I'm here in Baton Rouge and I focus on um, religion, media and technology, particularly Catholic communities. Fantastic. And with an excellent uh, mic set up um, both yeah. in front and behind you there. Uh, very jealous. And Christy. <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, so I am an associate lecturer at the University of Leeds, where I also recently finished my PhD just over the end of the summer. So exciting times. Um, I uh, skew sociology uh, <clears throat> of religion focus, so I tend to look at the intersection of uh, political rhetoric, media discourse, and religious elements. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. And I think that will indeed be coming up in the story that you've brought to the table. Um, so we, we've got we've got four stories we might discuss. Um, we're going to start within half an hour, so who knows if we'll get to them all. But um, we thought in our discussions at the beginning, Lauren, that, that yours um, was perhaps the best one to, to kick us off. So what are we talking about? Sure. So Pope Emeritus Benedict died on New Year's Eve just a few weeks ago. And his death, there's a lot of things to unpack about Benedict's legacy and having an emeritus pope for the first time in hundreds of years. Um, but for me, being interested in both Catholic communities and media, his death provided an opportunity, a media moment, if you will, for traditionalists and conservative Catholics to sort of air their grievances and comment on the state of the current papacy and the church. Um so lay people criticizing a pope isn't new and internal Vatican politics isn't new. But having an emeritus pope still living in the Vatican along with the current pope and leaders with two very different views and styles at that sort mm -hmm. of provided two figureheads for two different coalitions in a way that there usually isn't so visibly. Um, and it made those sorts of allegiances clearer. Um, so to add to this, just in the last few days, yesterday even, there have been several books, sort of tell-all sensational books that when taken together, and especially discourses about them on social media, um, construct a really polarizing picture of contemporary Catholicism, a really scandalous, um, uh, juicy picture. So, And this includes a book of Pope, Pope Benedict's um, a collection of his essays, four of which are brand new, published now posthumously, um, 
and and it included an order that it not be published until after his death because he knew they'd you know kick up some dust, cause some controversy. So he dated the preface to that book May first, twenty twenty two, and that all the essays were written after his resignation, twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two. So right now on social media, the release of that book again became a media event or is going on a media event on on Catholic Twitter, if you will, for the hashtag trads and rad trads out there. Um, and for some, it served as like sort of almost a cue type drop, like a hidden secret and conspiracy theory. Oh, Benedict's trying to tell us all of this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very effective at making people feel like insiders, right? So there's some interesting work being done in religious studies with affect theory and groups based on conspiracy theories, focusing on how something feels really exciting um, as like a motivator. So there's that whole aspect of it as well. But for me, um, kind of the two main things that popped out with this news that I think is interesting to think through is one, how we think and talk about polarization. Um, so a lot of times this is framed by Catholic and mainstream media, as well as social media as a cold war or a civil war between conservatives and more progressive cardinals and bishops. But I think that those types of news articles and that type of framework implies that there's going to be a winner, right? That a side will emerge from the next conclave victorious and that will shape the future of the church, um, but I've spent a lot of time on, on Catholic Twitter and uh, conservatives, especially American Catholics, U.S. Catholics, um, who view themselves as right wing or part of the new right, likely won't bend to ideas or, you know, continued rhetoric that they view as harmful. So people are going to do what they're going to do as they long have. Most U.S. Catholic women, for example, have long used contraception, for instance, and Catholics have had major shifts on their thinking on hot button issues over time. Um, so different coalitions produce coalitions sort of produce different frames, right, that can redefine issues and change the level of controversies over time. And like people always construct identities that are relatively autonomous from church teaching. And U.S. Catholics in particular have long been Catholic, you know, on their own terms, regardless of official stuff. So to me, it's not a matter of even change, conservation versus change or staying the same. Uh, Things have always changed. And it's a matter of which issues people want Catholicism to be most identified with. These are acts of identification. So I think the real question is not who wins and who will control, you know, like a bunch of stuff, but rather how does an organization like this, and we can ask this question of lots of institutions, nations, right? How do organizations look going forward? Like, are people going to stay and just negotiate loyalties from the inside like they always have, or will there be a more visible split? Will it be slow or will it be something more dramatic? That to me is the real question, not only for the contemporary Catholic church, but for like lots of our, you know, modern institutions that feel on on uh, uneasy ground fantastic yeah there's so much going on there um my knowledge of the, the general area is somewhat restricted to um various uh, catholic friends or members of family some friends who are very very pro benedict and anti-francis but obviously within a framework where they're obviously pro-francis because he's the pope um and then also, um, I think well, about six months ago, finally getting around to watching the the the, the two popes movie, uh, which I which I very much enjoyed uh, seeing that dialogue oh, yeah. playing out. Um, but there, there's there's so much going on here in terms of, uh, and it, it it was immediately making me think, of course, about the, the other uh, religious. Is it in scare quotes? I don't know. 
institution <laughs> of the the British monarchy um, mm. and the revelations going on at the moment um, with uh, Harry and Meghan and podcasts and Netflix series and books. Um, and there we have a sort of institution being publicly, you know, attacked from inside and outside the Catholic situation. It's well, the, the, the former Pope is no longer there and was not attacking, was indeed defending the institution and then is being mobilized and weaponized on, on Twitter for a whole variety of different discursive purposes. So there's so much going on. Um, yeah. And I like how you picked out like Twitter in particular. So even with like, yeah, with the British monarchy or with long, these long standing institutions, there's always been sort of controversies and scandals and all this stuff, but with media, with like hyper mediation, the always on, you know, always super fast, broadly participatory. Everybody's got an opinion and you're going to hear about like with it, it really, to me, that's the determinative factor in, in a lot of this. Um, mm-hmm. So uh just the what? way that digital create, media creates these near constant events or sites of social friction where identities are continuously worked out. I mean, identities have always been fluid and constructed and never homogenous, but these just hyper fast, always on. Uh, it just makes it it makes it even more clear. Yeah, I mean, what and then Christy do do jump in as well do kind of thing, but I just wanted to ask, what is the Catholic institution? saying or doing if anything because i get i'm going to just come back to the uk monarchy because that's been dominating my media space for a while and and they seem to be doing their standard thing you know that they've done pre-internet pre-social media of just saying nothing um that that, that's always seemed to be the, the way the uk monarchy approaches any sort of scandal big media for is just leave it and carry on, and I wonder how the um, the sort of Catholic Church as an institution is is it officially saying anything, or is it again is is there just sort of institutional silence? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it, it's so interesting because the it's it's almost better to think of the church, even like at the central, even in the Vatican, right? It's it is indeed an institution, but it's not as <laughs> it's, it it may be interesting to think of it more a little bit more. Um, sort of pockets of power. Um, so you have Francis, right? Who's of course going to be, you know, he's going to be, you know, kind and sort of, you know, he, he said nice things. And of course he's not going to um, be controversial or, or anything like that. Um, but he's certainly from within, right. Going to try to shore up power. Um, it depends on how much longer he lives. Right. Because now we have this precedent of like, you can retire when you are too ill or too, you know, um, it, if you don't feel like you can handle, control of the institution anymore. So um, so how, lo- how much longer is he going to hang on? If he hangs on two more years, he's going to have a chance to appoint a lot of cardinals. That's going to, you know, affect the next conclave. But again, all of those sort of internal discussions of what's the institution going to do, you know, that doesn't tell us a lot about what Catholics around the globe are going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so you have kind of two different conversations where some people want to focus on sort of the internal workings of the Vatican, but like one, one day on Catholic Twitter is going to show you a, a vastly different picture with different conversations, different priorities that are, that are like you said, dependent on locals. So the U S might be having different conversations than Catholics, you know, in Italy. Um, so, uh, so it's really interesting and traditionalist trads or rad trads in the U S um, of course, typically hate Pope Francis as he symbolizes wokeness and modernism. 
them. They want to go back, right, to when Catholicism is great, whether that's pre-Vatican II, the Victorian era, or all the way back to early modern and medieval Europe. We see lots of fivefold crosses, crusader imagery on, on Catholic Twitter. And politically, people like Ali Alexander of Stop the Steal, Caitlin Bennett, better known as the Kin Saint Gun Girl, Nick Fuentes of America First, or the Groyper Movement, they're all trads, and they're all pulling uh, Catholic imagery from the cultural toolbox and sort of using it um, in an American right-wing moment. So uh, so there's just so much going on in uh, the kind of Catholic landscape, Catholic media landscape, both from within and outside of the institution itself. I mean, that might be a good way to transition, Christy, um, to, to your story as well, thinking about that sort of the rhetoric of re returning and making great again, um, but also, you know, so I'll allow you to do that transition and comment if you wish and also introduce as we go <laughs> yeah sure so um yeah the um the rad had was a, a rabbit hole i had never dove down into before um this discussion so that was something um it was quite a spectrum um and i was struck by um the global conversation aspect of it and just how um how it seemed to be quite uh localized in some ways but then still with those threads tying through um and i think that's not too far off that some of the discussion that's surrounding um the article i'm bringing in because obviously the most the most obvious parallel that you can draw between uh the brazilian situation and uh uh evangelical activism in the us is you know the January 6th versus the protest that occurred what, 10 days ago now. Um, but it's, it's more than that. And it's, it's simultaneously, um, uh, local branches of each, but still that dialogue going on, um, because we're so connected and I found it, um, really quite interesting. So, um, it's a write up in the Washington Post that I brought, um, that I noticed that had to do with the parallels between, um, the markers and um, rituals, practices um, that were being brought into protest in Brazil in the same, not, not precisely the same, but in similar manner to how they're being brought into um, the events of January the 6th, but also the MAGA movement more generally um, and moving into um, that, that Christian nationalist realm that a lot of evangelical activism is coming into. Um, and what I found interesting as well was the the transnational movement of the messaging uh from the US to there and in ways that I don't think it's talked about very much. Um it, it discusses the um the the post Civil War um Confederate exodus of sorts that 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 brought a lot of the the mission aspects of Protestantism into Brazil and, and shifted that kind of conversation into more of, um, rather than somewhat of a passive presence into a more proactive integration with society, starting to work into institutionalized structures and things, um, and really moving into society. And now it's grown into such a political, uh, force, um, that you're really starting to see now that everything's so much more connected, um, a much more powerful arm, both in terms of the language and the elements of the faith that are being brought into that conversation, but also in terms of the legitimizing forces and, and power that's involved there. A bit rambly there. 
No, no, it's great. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to make assumptions that Lauren will probably have more to contribute to the sure. uh, conversation oh, than I do, but um, <laughs> just through a sort of lived lens, I suppose. Um, but you know, my my immediate reactions are well. First of all, what is it about January uh, <laughs> that seems to be causing? Um, but also, um, it, it's that it's that sort of shift, and, and perhaps this is a return to the sort of the the idea that the, the, the morality of the the nation is only preserved and correct if it is if it is your morality that is being sort of imposed and and lived um across and that the sort of offense um and challenge posed by the presence of others who are not subscribing to one's one's worldview um which is sort of quite distant from from a the predominant um worldview that in in various western contexts in recent decades and um, we've definitely started to see that shift but uh, thoughts Lauren? Yeah yeah you you focused a lot on the um, similar rhetoric and images and sort of a similar mythology being drawn from um, from you know evangelical uh, traditions but uh there's also like networks, right? Vast networks between um, Brazilian and the new right in Brazil and the and the right in the U.S. And the networks are largely Catholic, right? Again, Steve Bannon, Ali Alexander. Um, so trads or traditionalist Catholics are huge on Brazilian Catholic Twitter, where I also hang out. <laughs> um, so it's definitely a thing there too, culturally. Um, so while evangelicals and Pentecostals in Brazil are certainly you know, conservative, Catholicism provides just as many tools in the cultural toolbox um, if you you know want to be a fascist. So it's a it's a reminder to me when I look at these movements that religions don't do things like people do. Right. Um, one of Bolsonaro's advisors, um, Alavo uh, de Cavallo, who died only last year, um, some called him Bolsonaro Steve Bannon. So he was a Catholic and a traditionalist in the philosophical sense of traditionalist. Um, so while there are these intention, you know, international networks often linked by Catholicism, um, Brazil has, you know, its own long history apart from, uh, you know, contemporary U.S. politics of its own authoritarian stuff, right? I mean, just from a Catholic perspective, the founding of the right-wing tradition family property um, in like 1960, uh, you know, a Catholic right-wing political organization that spread internationally from Brazil, right? Um, and, and then, you know, followed by a hard reaction to liberation theology, doubling down on authoritarianism. So I think it's a mistake to brute to um, view Brazilian illiberalism as as a mere copycat of the of U.S. evangelicalism yeah. because one many Catholics have no problem mobilizing a hard right wing coalition and two <laughs> Brazil has exported plenty uh, especially with the TFP example so certainly international networks as you mentioned really interesting connections with rhetoric and imagery obviously following right after a year later um, but also sort of highlighting um, local history and context. Um, and lots of different, yeah, tools in the cultural toolbox that people um, are using in both of those contexts, both yeah, within sure. evangelicalism and also outside of it. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Um, well, this, um, it, just in terms of rhetoric, then the, the, the story that I um, have brought is, you know, that there's this constant rhetoric. Um, I'm sure we're all aware of of the, the science religion conflict. Um, um, and I, I didn't mention at the start that sort of my, my first bit of research for my undergrad dissertation was was on 
Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, etc. And I wouldn't have used the term discursive rhetoric, but I suppose now I would use that term if I was to go back and interpret my undergrad dissertation. Um, um, and I've stuck in that area a bit. So there was a, <clears throat> a report um, published um, just last month, um, and we'll link to it from the page. Uh, it was through the, the Theos think tank. Um, it was the um, results of a, a Templeton, also oh, Templeton-funded uh, research project um, called Science and Religion Reframing the Conversation, but it was looking it was trying to drill down into that um, science-religion conflict, um, how it is lived out um, on the ground, as it were, where, where does the rhetoric come from, and so on. And, and this was uh, from a, a YouGov survey of 5,000 um, UK residents. So when we're talking about the science-religion conflict, first of all, this uh, study is only UK based. Um, and secondly, it's focusing on um, gender um, differences um, in the construction of that conflict. So the nature of surveys is such that um, they tend to be somewhat binary. So we probably will lapse into talking about um, men and women or male and female in this. That's not to um, exclude others who would not um, identify in those terms um, but the nature of large-scale social surveys would be that um, folk who do not fit into those two broad catch-all categories tend to be not statistically significant enough for them to make it into the into the results so the um the survey i mean showed some things that um are perhaps somewhat unsurprising to those who are familiar with this that uh, um, in general, men were much more disposed to say that there was a, a strong conflict or a high incompatibility between science and religion. And the survey did break it down. Religion, and there was faith, and there was Christianity. And it, it, so there's a slight nuance that you, you can read the, the full report. Um, but in general, there was a, a greater proclivity for, for men to see there being a a conflict between science and religion. When we drill down into it, it's still, you know, there's, there's maybe a five, ten percent difference. So it's not, it's not huge, but there is a proclivity. Um, but where it gets interesting then is that if they parceled out this population into non-religious, the non-religious and the religious, which again they do by, um, Self-identification, that's how they make that distinction in this YouGov poll. Um, so understandably, the non-religious tend to see there being more of a conflict between science and religion than the religious. But then you take that non-religious population, so non-religious men, more inclined, older non-religious men, over 50, more inclined again. Um, so the, the um, towards the end of the um, uh, report, I'll, I'll read the interesting. They said, uh, and 
these facts combine to generate an obvious potential for tension. Quote, um, if you believe that science is the only reliable way to get knowledge about the world, and you also believe that religion is a set of beliefs about the physical world, then the tension between those two is predetermined. So that there was a bunch of other stuff in the survey. Basically, men were more inclined to see religion as a sort of rule book about nature and therefore and they were also more inclined to see science as the way to understand nature so therefore that that tension is is um somewhat predetermined as it would say so there's a, there's a lot of interesting things going on there there's the age thing there's the um stereotypical perhaps gendered divide also interestingly in some of the questions um i mean like islam and science was a question 38 percent of people identifying as women said don't know to that question when we were much more inclined when presented with these questions to say i don't know men were much more inclined to go yes i think this and it is this extreme opinion one way or the other um so uh in terms of nuance this is adding to the debate or new things it's like it, it's interesting to see it, it sort of looking at it a bit more intersectionally and going okay you know within non-religious populations look at it by gender and age and so on and, and that, that adds a bit of interesting nuance but also of course that and this is where david hopefully will be interested in this as well because a lot of david's recent work is about um knowledge how we know things competing epistemologies and actually it's you know that this conflict comes up if if you see religion as being about how we know stuff and about knowledge and if you see science as being the only way of knowing then that is where the conflict comes but for a lot of people younger people um and people who are not old white men let's put it that way you know there are other ways of knowing things experience is where um you know, authentic experience, human interaction, um, art, music, all these things are all ways of knowing. Um, so I thought that epistemology connection was quite interesting. Um, has any of my ramble produced any thoughts or reactions? Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, especially, I feel like the way the question sets up, um, the question, right, posing science and religion already in yeah. is sort of constructing them in opposition to each other, right? I think it would be interesting if you maybe ask the same thing about religion versus spirituality. Now religion becomes the sort of rational, um, you know, organized set where spirituality becomes the sort of mm -hmm. like experiential belief. So I think it has a lot, like you said, right? It has a lot to do with how we just construct definitions uh -huh. and, and conceive of these as ways of knowing things and, and what that does in relation to one another already to set up dichotomies, right? Um, when there may not, yeah. 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 And in fact, um, one of my long overdue writing projects, but I, I did a, a paper I did it to the Science and Religion Seminar series at Edinburgh, but I, I basically said that, I, I said it was, I called it the overemphasis of the science religion conflict in yeah. non-religion studies, because uh, I, I have a bunch of data from PhD and postdoc work where I'm looking at the discourse, uh, discourse around religion and meaningful stuff employed by people who identify as not being religious and yes there's there's a thread in there about sort of 
the science, knowledge, meaning making, meaning of life. How do we know what we know? Where are we going? Cosmology. There's there's a th- there, there is a thread in there, but that was, I mean, I found eight broad discursive groupings, and that was only one of eight. And I'm, that was only in my body of data. And I'm sure there's more stuff out there as well. And I think a lot of studies tend to go, oh, there is a conflict or this is really significant because religion is all about big questions and how we know what we know and where we're going after we die. So the question itself comes with a, you know, this is the most significant aspect of religion. Science seems to be doing the same thing. Let's look at those loud voices that say there is a conflict. Yeah, there's yeah, so exactly. much else. Don't a lot about the, the surveyors' uh, views. <laughs> Maybe yeah. perhaps exactly christy any any reactions to her rambles no i'm just yeah i i think it's just over and over the recurrence of this over reliance and slipping however inadvertently into problematic binaries over and over and how it's just like seeping into every single debate that we're messing with there's not i mean that was the um even in the in the rad trad conversation, there was I I kept being struck by this that there's so much more nuance here um that that needs to be explored. Um Exactly. Yeah. And if if, you know and that can always be frustrating, you know, if I'm in a in a pub quiz and uh, questions about religion come up, you know, and everyone turns to me and goes, ah, finally, you're a specialist subject. You'll know the answer to this. And nine times out of ten, I go, no. <laughs> it's a specific tradition about, uh, sorry, a specific question about a tradition that I've got no um, empirical knowledge of. But my job here is to complicate things, to say it's more complicated than that. What were the questions that were asked? Who was asked? Why are we speaking in these binaries and so on? Um, whereas people want, you know, they want, what is the answer? <laughs> so if, if if the RSP and if the study of religion does anything, I hope that we, you know, don't provide too many of those hard and fast answers and instead go, no, if people ask you for that, you know, which of these is it that you can come with a response of, well, you know, where have those categories come from? What's their legacy? What is the effect of using these binary classifications on this debate, etc.? Um, well, I don't think uh, that we have been going for half an hour and see these just fly by. So I think we're going to be stuck with three stories, folks. But um, thanks very much to, to Lauren and Christy and apologies if anything has gone wrong with the tech. Um, well, you'll know by now, I suppose. But fingers <laughs> crossed we, we got the tech sorted. Um, that's just how it is. But thanks for listening. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. 
Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thank you.